So last week we kicked off our series, We Are Family, by looking at Jesus' words, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And it's vitally important that a family stands together or it won't stand at all. And then he gave us a new definition, a new definition of what it means to be a part of Jesus' family, a new criteria, right? He said, it doesn't matter whose family you were born into, what your last name is, what language you speak, what nation you come from, what race you are, what matters to be part of God's family is the, everyone who believes that Jesus is their Savior from sin. That's what makes you a part of God's family. And so as I stand up here this morning, I'm looking out at a bunch of people who are God's family. And a part of our family, our church family here at Foundation as well. But that kind of leads us into the age-old Lutheran question, what does this mean? What does it mean to be part of God's family? What does it mean to be part of a church family? And over the next three weeks, that's really what we're going to take a look at, what it means to be part of a family. And today we're going to see that it means that family grows together. Now before we get into our, our scripture reading this morning, there's some backstory that, that's helpful to know. And it revolves around a man named Saul. Some of you have heard about him or heard the story before. Saul was a lead persecutor of Christians. He hated them, he, and he wanted to get rid of them. And do you know why? Because Saul thought he was right. He thought he knew they're wrong, I'm right. I don't even want to listen to what they have to say. They're wrong. There's no way Jesus is the Savior, and so whoosh, we're going to get rid of all of you. That was his goal. Until Jesus said, hold on there, Saul. You're persecuting the wrong man. You're persecuting the wrong God. And for the next three days, Saul was blind until God sent a man to him to heal him of his blindness, to tell him about Jesus, his Savior, and to give him the gift of baptism. And by the working of the Holy Spirit, Saul became a child of God, washed in water, made, uh, made a believer through the, through the word of God. And because of that, he changed his name. He's no longer Saul. That's who he used to be. Now he is Paul. And God had a plan, a mission for Paul. It was to take that message of Jesus the Savior and spread it like crazy all around the world, right? There were, there were plenty of people who were spreading that message in the nation or the region of Israel, but there's a whole big Mediterranean world out there, Paul, and I want you to take that message and go. And so Paul went on a number of missionary journeys all around the Mediterranean world, and then he'd go back home and regather and be at home for a little bit, and then he'd go back out. And in the middle of his second mission trip, he stopped in a town, a city called Thessalonica. Maybe it sounds a little bit familiar because if you know, there's two books of the Bible called Thessalonians, the people who lived in Thessalonica. And when Paul stopped there, he did what he often did, and he went to the synagogue, the Jewish church. And that's really where our, our text this morning from Acts chapter 17 begins. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, 
they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Now, it's helpful, again, to keep in mind, Paul had been raised as a Jew. He called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He was well-educated in in Jewish, not just customs, but in Jewish uh, scriptures. He knew them well. He had been taught by one of the, the leading Jewish teachers in the world at the time. But Paul also had this extra leg up, if you will. He knew that all of that history, all of the prophecy, all of the poetry of those Old Testament scriptures, they were really all about Jesus. Which brings us to our first takeaway this morning, that all of the Bible points me to God's plan of salvation. Because Paul was raised Jewish, because he was so knowledgeable in the Old Testament scriptures, because he had all this background and training, the first place he would often go when he went into a new town or city or village was to the Jewish synagogue, their church. Why? Because there he found people who were knowledgeable of the Bible, of scripture, and who were waiting for the promised Messiah. So when Paul got to Thessalonica, that's what he did. He went to the Jewish synagogue. And for three separate weeks, he had the privilege, right? Because of his Jewish schooling, his training, he had the opportunity to get to speak, to teach in the synagogue. They they viewed him as a traveling expert and said, hey, come and tell us. And so he did. And look what he said, right? In verses 2 and 3, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. He would take take those Old Testament scrolls that they had in their synagogues. He would open them up and he would say, let me show you. Let me show you where Jesus is here and here and here and how this is all about Jesus. The problem that many of the Jews in the synagogues had and was the same as the problem that really almost all people have. It's our second takeaway this morning. See, those Jews weren't really all that different from Paul. Testament scriptures, he thought, but he thought he knew everything. Hear it. And the same was true of the Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica. They had been taught for years what had happened was that over time, that the wrath so devastating day one or day 10 or day 50, a couple of hundred years later, what they were teaching was more tradition than Scripture. Many Jews thought that the, than the actual Bible. And so as a result, glorious earthly figure, that he was going to be a magnificent ruler, that he was going to come and set up and restore the nation of Israel to power and prominence in the world scene, that he was going to lead, that he was going to give his people glory here. 
And that's why they really had a problem with Jesus. Because Jesus taught things like, turn the other cheek. Wait a minute, I thought you are supposed to be like this valiant leader and warrior. How does that work? Where's your army? How are you going to drive out the Romans? They're powerful. You can't do that without an army. I, I thought you were supposed to, to raise people up. Well, they missed so much of the scripture because of what they thought they knew. They knew something, and they thought they knew everything. And so when Jesus came with, yeah, he did some pretty amazing things, and he taught some really powerful messages, but, but then he suffered, and he was mocked, and he was beaten, and he died in this gruesome and horrible way on a cross. And there's no way that they thought that's what the Messiah would be or should do. Because they knew something, they thought they knew everything. The problem was, and that's why Paul would take these scrolls and he would open them up and he would say, let me show you. Let me show you how what the Bible says, what God says in his word, is exactly what the Savior did, what Jesus did. See, they thought the, the Savior was going to be this earthly, glorious figure. But they had forgotten so many things. They had missed what, what God had said. I would imagine Paul opened up to maybe passages like this, the very first promise of a Savior, right after Adam and Eve had sinned. And what did God say? I'm going to put enmity, conflict, strife between you, devil, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he, the Savior, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That the Messiah was going to come and he was going to destroy the devil's work. That's why he came. Not to destroy the, the Romans' work or any other earthly power, but to crush the devil's power. But it was going to be a, a costly and a painful victory. Or maybe he, he chose verses, I've, I've got to imagine like this, from Isaiah 53. Verses that every good Jewish Bible-knowing person knew this is about the Savior, about the Messiah. And look what it says. He was despised. Not glorified. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to, his own, to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Those verses make it painfully clear that the Messiah wasn't going to come to be glorified, to, to sit on this glorious uh, golden throne here on earth and just rule from, from on high, that he was going to come to suffer, to die, and for a purpose, for the sins of his people. As Paul connected the reality and fulfillment of Jesus with those Old Testament scriptures, you know what God did? God worked faith in the hearts of some of those Thessalonians. 
God did what God does through his powerful word, and they believed. They believed in Jesus as their Savior. They believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But there were also some that didn't believe. They weren't interested in really what Paul had to say because they thought, because they knew something, that they knew everything. It's kind of interesting, those Thessalonians, they were way, way, way ahead of their time. Because they sure sound like postmodern 2019 Americans, don't they? People who increasingly don't want to hear any other account, any other version, any other side of a story. No, 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 I only want to hear what I think. I only want you to tell me, to echo to me what I already know, what I already believe. I don't want to hear that you might have a different perspective on it. I don't want to hear that you might have a different viewpoint. Let me give you the latest example. You probably heard about it. Is this picture. When this showed up on national TV last Sunday at the Packers and Cowboys game of, of George W. Bush and Ellen DeGeneres sitting next to each other, social media went nuts. And people vilified and railed against Ellen. How could you sit next to the enemy? You're consorting with the enemy. You're a traitor. It got so bad that she actually went on her show the next day and used her monologue to say, yeah, we, we don't agree on a lot of things, but we're still friends. But that wasn't good enough. And there were a lot of people that just absolutely refused to accept that. Do you know why? Not just because they couldn't understand it, but because they absolutely didn't want it. They don't want to hear that you can be friendly with a person that you don't fully agree with. Because, well, they don't want to be friends with anyone who believes or thinks differently. Because they're bad, and I'm good, and because I know something, that means I know everything. But it's not like just the Twitterverse that railed against Ellen that actually falls into this temptation, this trap, is it? And think about the friends that you keep. Do they stand for, believe in, vote, like the same things you do? Probably. And that's not all wrong. We have things in common, so we're friends. I, I understand that. What's the social media that you engage in? Do you only follow and like things that, well, that you stand for? That you, that you agree with, that you believe in? Or are you willing to listen to the other side? What about the news that you watch? Is it the, the channel that tells you what you already think? Or is it the, the other side of the story? We all do it, right? But what about the faith that you have? See, here's where it becomes really dangerous, not just to live in the echo chamber that we live in, that we, to tell us what we want to hear, but, but when it comes to our faith, we're tempted to still keep doing that same thing. And we want to make faith, well, kind of like the Thessalonians did, a very personal thing, that, that I'm going to believe what I believe, and you can't tell me anything differently. 
well, that's not what I believe, and that's okay, because that's what I believe, and it's for me, and, and how dare you tell me what I should believe? And that's all fine and good, but what, what happens when you're wrong? Because we are wrong. <laughs> Let's just admit that right now. We are wrong. We get things wrong. We sin. We make mistakes. Who's going to, if, you, if your faith is just solely independent and, and just what you believe and that's all that matters, what happens when you slip into sin? What happens when you go down the path, not the one that God says, but you veer off of it? Are you self-aware enough to realize it? And if you are, are you going to address it? Or are you going to embrace it because, well, it's what I want to do. It's what I believe. It's what feels good for me. What happens when you acknowledge and you recognize your sin and you say, man, I'm a mess. Now what? Who's going to point you to Jesus? Who's going to assure you you are loved? You are forgiven. Because the devil's going to do the opposite. He's going to be sitting there, oh, you call yourself a Christian? You did that? You think somebody loves you? You think anybody loves you? And when you make faith such a personal thing that, that it involves nobody else and not even maybe sometimes God, and certainly not his word, then we, we're in danger because nobody can correct, nobody can, can point us in the right direction, and nobody can show us Jesus. Which brings us to the second part of our Bible reading. Because God wants you and he wants me to not just be like this personal standalone, right? Simon and Garfunkel, I'm an island. He doesn't want you to be off alone by yourself and think, I got to handle all of this. Because God says, I want you to keep growing. I want you to grow in what you know, to grow in what you believe in, to grow in your faith and your knowledge. And that's where we, come, we see the second piece of our Bible text this morning. Those believers, what's kind of cool is the, the original Greek doesn't say believers, it says those brothers, right? family. Those new Christians in Thessalonica, there was such a, an outcry against Paul and Silas, against their teaching, that, that there were Christians that were being arrested after just a couple of weeks and thrown into jail, and they were searching house to house to find Paul and Silas. And so some of those Christians, those brothers and sisters, they snuck Paul and Silas out of the city at night, and they went down to Berea. Let's take a look at verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. On arriving in Berea, Paul did the same thing he did in Thessalonica. Went to the synagogue. And there... Well, we're told that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Oh, they're a better class, a better class of Christians, right? They're the, the hoity-toities. 
No, not really. What would make God, right? Because this is God's word. So what would make God say they're of more noble character? Well, did you notice what they did? They received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. God commends them, not just for their character, but for the reason of their character, that they wanted to know. This guy came in, and he's got a different message than what we have been taught, that what we've heard, right? No doubt they had the same misconception about the Messiah that the Thessalonians did, that even Paul did, that they thought the Messiah was going to be some kind of earthly figure. And so here comes Paul, and he says, hey, let me show you that, that the that Jesus is the Messiah. And instead of saying no, or instead of saying, okay, they said, we want to find out for ourselves. We want to see if what you're saying is true. And so they, they dug into the scriptures. They examined it to, to hold up what Paul was saying to the light of God's word and see if it matched up. And it did. And notice the result. Again, God's word is powerful. Many of them believed, right? They didn't think that they, were, that they knew everything. They thought that maybe there's something to this, and, and we're going to go back to the source to find out. Did you know that God wants you to do the same thing? God wants you to be a Berean. He wants you to not just listen to this guy up front talk and go, oh, okay. Or, ugh, I don't like that, so I'm not listening. He wants you to listen to what I say and then to take it back and go to your Bible and say, is this true? Is what he said actually what God says? He wants you to do that for me and for every single spiritual-sounding message that you hear. Right? The Bible says, test the spirits. Test the spiritual messages that you hear. But, but do so by holding it up to the the pure beauty and light and truth of God's word. So what does that mean? Well, that means that you probably need to know something about God's word, right? If you're going to compare what, what pastor says or what, what the guy in the podcast says or the guy on the TV says to what the Bible says, you probably need to know some of the Bible. And you need to be, be continuing to grow in the Bible. Now you're in luck because in a couple of months we're going to be coming up to the end of the year and, and we'll get around to January and what do we do in January? Oh, this year I'm going to do this. And then three weeks later, oh, I guess I didn't. Oh, I'll wait till next year. What if, what if you took up a challenge? There are 80 days from today until 2020. Only 80. But what if you took those 80 days and you did what the Bereans did? What if you said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to get into the Bible. I'm going to read God's word every single day from now until 2020. And I want to see what, what I'm going to learn about Jesus, about God, and about his word, about his plan, about his love. I, I wonder what you could learn about God in 80 days. Do you know that if you read three verses a day, it would probably take you 70 seconds to read three verses? 
maybe another minute and a half or two minutes to think about them. Do you know that if you read three verses a day, you would read almost half of the Gospel of Mark? Three verses. A minute and a half. Do you know that if you took a a bigger challenge and you said, I'm going to read a chapter a day, and some chapters are shorter, right? Some chapters are a little longer. It might take you eight minutes. It might take you 15 minutes some days. But if you did that, you would read almost all of the four Gospels in the next 80 days. There'd be only nine chapters of John that you wouldn't get to. You'd cover a lot of ground if you just said, I'm going to do this much each day. Or if you started a little bit after that, if you started in the, in, after the Gospels and you started with Paul's letter to the Galatians, you know how many books you'd read? That many. If you read one chapter a day for 80 days, you would read Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and half of Revelation. One chapter. 80 days. But really the question is why? Why would you do something like that? Because the guy up front said to? I hope not. I hope that isn't why you would do it, but, but I want to point you actually back to our first takeaway this morning. Do you remember it? All of the Bible points me to God's plan of salvation. See, because when you read the Bible, God helps you see things that, that otherwise you probably don't see. Blind spots in your own life. Weaknesses that you've given into that, that you've become so used to Right? It's this pet sin that I just keep around and I, I just keep doing it and I think it's not that big of a deal. And then I read in God's word where he says, this is a big deal. This is sin. And he helps me see that. He helps me see things about myself that, that I didn't even recognize were weaknesses and failings. But he doesn't just point out our failings, right? He, he helps us see the answer. He points us again and again and again and again to promises kept to love bigger than you can even imagine to a savior who's paid for it all because in Jesus he shows you love more than you will ever know in Jesus he helps you to see the depth of his love for you the gracious gifts that he has blessed you with He helps you see past the momentary problems to the eternal promises. In Jesus, he helps you see how you've been washed, how you've been made holy because of Jesus, how he strengthens you to fight temptation and equips you to live for him and for his glory. He helps you see how it's good to forgive and it's great to be kind and all of these beautiful things for life that on our own we tend to go, yeah, I don't know if that's such a good thing. I don't know if I want to do that. But God helps us see in his word over and over and over again and not just see it, but he motivates us because of Jesus to do it. That brings us to our third takeaway this morning. That studying God's word helps me see life better and Jesus more clearly. 
See, because God wants you to grow. He wants you to grow in how you see yourself. He wants you to grow in how you see him. He wants you to grow in how you see other people and how you treat other people. He wants you to grow in your faith, in your knowledge. He wants you to keep growing. To not think because you know something that you know everything, but to, to continue to grow. The best part, though, is this isn't all on you. That's why you're here today, right? Because we're a family. And family stands together and family supports each other. And so we gather here together as a family around what? The donuts? Well, they're a nice bonus. That's not why we're here. We came here to hear God's word. We're a family that gathers around God's word. And so we bring all of our individual problems and struggles and hurts. And we think nobody else has, nobody else could even imagine what I'm going through. And we bring them all. And you know what God says? I've got the answer for you and for you and for you and you and you and you and you. I've got the answer for all of you. So bring it. Come here. Listen and know that you're forgiven. And know what God has done for you. And know his love for you. And feel the Christian support and encouragement of your family. As everybody pours out their hearts and their hurts to God. And he says, they're all washed away. And he says, I've got the answer to your problem. And I've got the answer to your hang-up. That's why we gather here, isn't it? And that's why we gather in our life groups too. That's why I really want to encourage you, if you aren't in a life group, check it out. Because there we gather together around God's word for all the, the messy situations that life puts in our, our way. And you know what's kind of cool? So this last week, there was one answer that came up. There's actually two of them. And if you were in the, the Wednesday or Thursday groups, you heard me say this. I, I didn't come up with this answer. Somebody in our Tuesday group said it better than I could ever have say it, said it. Because it wasn't about me getting it right or getting credit for it. I don't need to know everything. God does. And as we work together, we're encouraged and built up by our by experiences, by our answers. And so we gather together with a group of people who don't think they've got it all perfectly who don't think they know everything, and they're okay with that because we go to the source, the, the one who has the answers. We go to God. And so this morning, I, I want to encourage you, and I, I want to wrap up by pointing you to the blue piece of paper that you probably sat on when you sat down this morning. And it says, my spiritual growth plan. God wants us to grow. He wants us to grow here together, but he wants you to grow at home, on your own, to be a Berean, right? And so I want to I encourage you, I want to challenge you to fill this out, to make a plan. doesn't have to be, I'm going to do an hour every day. Pick a time of day and an amount, either a, a set amount of time or a set amount of the Bible that you're going to read. And then choose what, where you're going to start. What am I going to read? 
Am I going to start in Genesis? Am I going to start in John? Am I going to start in Galatians? Where am I going to read? And decide if you're going to use a hardcover, like a Bible Bible. It doesn't have to be hardcover. It could be softcover. A physical Bible or an app. Or if you're going to even pull up the app, like the version app, it'll read to you. And you can connect it to your car and, and have the Bible read to you on your commute into work. As you're out for your morning walk, your evening jog. Choose what you're going to use, and then I want you to share it with somebody. Not to make you uncomfortable, but to help you be accountable. To encourage you, so that somebody goes, hey, how'd you do this week? Yeah, I only did three days. You know what? That's not a failure. That's three days in God's word. That's three days of, of knowing God and his love and his plan and his beauty better and more deeply. How about four days next week? You're forgiven for anything that you think you might have done wrong. And we get to encourage each other and build each other up. So pick somebody. If you want it to be me, I can, I can do it. Just maybe not all of you. You're, or you'll all get the same text message reply. I'll just tell you that now. But choose somebody. And then also, the last one, realize that God doesn't just want you to grow on your own. And so do everything that in your power to be here. To be here to gather with God's people on Sunday. To, to be in a group and say, I'm, I'm here because I want to be here. I want to grow with my family. I want to grow in my faith. I want to grow in, in what God has done for me in how God has made me and who he's made me to be. Because I don't want to just live in the echo chamber of my own thoughts and my own perceptions. I want to know what God says, even if it makes me a little uncomfortable sometimes. Because I want to grow. So be a Berean. Take the challenge. Make the most of it. Because God wants us to grow and to grow together. Amen.